0: Uh, but we're going to be looking this morning at uh, kind of the ecclesiological distinctives in the early church medieval era. So uh, that's covering uh, about 1,500 years of church history. A lot of it's going to be spent in the early church because that seems to be where a lot of the debate is uh, between you know, Protestants, Roman Catholics. Who gets to claim the church fathers, basically? Uh, and what we're going to see is that, well, it's, it's a rather mixed bag. It's a rather mixed bag, so it's difficult to say like, oh, well, we can claim this church father as being completely on board with us, because they were a little bit all over the map, as we'll see here. But hopefully it'll be helpful as we look at some of these distinctives. I'm going to open in prayer, and then we're going to look at a passage, and then look at uh, some of these distinctives. Let's pray together. So Father, as we come once again to learn, we ask, even as uh, as our minds are filled with knowledge, that we would not be puffed up with knowledge. That these facts wouldn't be used as battering rams, but that they would be used even in worship. That we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, even as we seek to understand these things. We thank you, even for the privilege of being able to learn, for the minds that you've given to us. Help us to apprehend these things, and above all, to keep trusting your word as the ultimate authority, even the final authority, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a question just to put to you, what's the most durable thing on earth? What's the most durable thing on earth? What's that? Diamonds? Yeah, diamonds are pretty durable. I saw one time somebody tried to whack it with a hammer, right? You've probably seen that. Can't can't break a diamond. I would argue that the most durable thing on earth is the church. It's the church. Uh, You could unleash all the powers of hell. Uh, You could have you know, complete tyranny across the board, Uh, totalitarian regimes, all of that. Unleash every power in opposition to the church, and the church of Christ, the true church, will prevail. And we see that there in Matthew 16. I'm going to read a few verses. This is going to serve kind of as a bit of a basis. A familiar passage, beginning there in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, well, I'm not going to go verse by verse and do an exposition of this, but you see right there, I think, proof of what I was stating earlier. The most durable thing on earth, the most resilient uh, institution on earth is the church. So just think about what is God doing right now? Well, there's, there's uh, an uncountable amount of things that the Lord is doing right now. But what we know he is doing is that he's building his church, right? He's building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There's a lot here in in Matthew 16. That's uh, There's been a lot of ink. There's even been blood spilled over. What it means here, specifically, that Peter would be the rock upon which Christ would build his church. Many of you are familiar with, then, the differences between Protestants and Roman Catholics, even on on that point. Roman Catholics uh, today will trace their lineage back to uh, to Peter as the first apostle and that there's this kind of apostolic succession after Peter And We're going to go through and look at maybe how some of these things developed So we see though there's there's really one main important question that everybody in the world has to answer Right, who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And so that's that's actually the most important question that every single person is confronted with in this passage but I think implicitly, within this text, we also have to ask the question and then seek to answer it is, what is the church and how is it to operate in this world? Right, what is the church and how is it to operate? What's the function of the church today? And as I said, you know, the reality is that there was a lot of diverse answers to this question, just as there is today. Right, you go, go talk to you know, somebody in the church, even here, They might have a little bit of a a different distinctive, a different flavor to that, uh, as an answer to that question. Of course, you see all the denominational distinctives. People have different answers to what is the church and what is the function? How how is it to be organized? How are its leaders to be organized? What is the mission of the church? All these questions that we, we need to answer because Christ is building his church. So it forces us to ask, well, what church? What's the true church? What does it look like? What are we supposed to be doing? Uh, so, to kind of look a little bit here at the church fathers this morning, what I want to consider are, are some ecclesiological distinctives uh, and developments from the early church through the medieval era. And so you see them there. I think there's, uh, there's six of them that I'm going to look at. This is by no means exhaustive. As I said, I kind of feel a little bit out of my, uh, out of my depths here to figure out You know, how do you summarize 1,500 years of church history in one session? But six of these distinctives, as I was reading, that I think are key to us understanding kind of the, the ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just a fancy word for the doctrine of the church. What is the nature of the church, and what is the mission of the church? What does it do? What is its function? Okay? So the first there is that Christ is the head. Christ is the head. So we saw that very clearly in Matthew 16, right? Whose church is it? What's well, Christ. Christ says, I will build my church. So, this is not your church. I mean, it is in a sense. But it's Christ's church. right? He is the head of the church. There's other places you could go. Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, various passages where it speaks of Jesus as the head of the body, this image. What is the head? Well, it speaks of, of an authority, of a ruler, right? The head being kind of the chief organism. If you don't have a head, you don't have life. And so uh, Christ being the head of the body, and he has purchased the church then with his own blood, securing eternal redemption for his people. Uh, So what this means then very practically is that nobody is a member of the church unless they are connected to the head. Nobody is a member of the church unless they are connected to the head. And that was really a strong emphasis that as you can trace all the way throughout church history, this emphasis that no, a person must be believing in Jesus to be truly a member of of the church. Now, there was distinctions that were made eventually between the visible and the invisible church. Um, in terms of some people would say, well, you know, you could be part of the visible church as a member, but um, and not be a believer, which which we don't believe here necessarily. But truly, the, the true church, the true church of Christ that He is building, you must be connected to the head, uh, and so uh, that's just very key. You see that I think it's uh, something that cannot be. I mean, it's just on the face of it; it's just very obvious. So that's the that's the first thing, just very quickly and simply. Christ is the head of the church. Uh, secondly, one of the emphases that you see uh, from the early church. All the way through, I'd say there's just a stream of it all the way from the New Testament even to today is this emphasis on the church as a consecrated community. A consecrated community. So the Apostles' Creed, which was an an early creed in the church, we've read it here before, Uh, the Apostles' Creed states that we believe in one holy Catholic church. One holy Catholic church. Now I want to focus on that word, holy Uh, So the idea of holy, what what does it mean to be holy? Yeah, set apart, right? You've been set apart by the grace of God. You've been called out, which is actually literally what the word ecclesia means. It means the ones who are called out. Ek, out of, kaleo, called out, ecclesia. So the church is a community of people who have been called out of their sins, who have been called out of the kingdom of darkness, and now, they gather, they assemble in the name of the triune God. That's what the church is. And so, there's this emphasis on the church being a distinctive community, distinct from the world. And, and you'll remember back to uh, kind of early times, really, I think it was the first or second session that we did, kind of speaking of, of the persecution that was going on in the empire. Well, what was one of the distinctives that marked Christians? It was their love right they were marked and known even by the world as holy people now they wouldn't have used those categories necessarily but people thought like these are kind of a different people uh, they're different than the world they think differently they love differently they believe differently they worship differently they they certainly don't worship all the gods that we're worshiping which is what got them into trouble so the church being a called-out community sanctified by the spirit who then assemble together to worship the triune God. That's what the church is. Hippolytus, uh, who was one of the uh, early church, uh, a pastor in the early church, he said that the church is a holy society of those who live in righteousness. It's a holy society of those who live in righteousness. That's a good way of just even thinking about what we are as a church. We are to be a holy, that is a distinct, a set-apart people, Devoted to Christ, uh, who live in righteousness. So, so, that, so that's another, another distinctive there, is that there's this kind of a consecrated community mindset, that, that we are a unique people, and as such, we are to live differently. We're to live differently. Uh, n- namely, and the, and the ability to live differently is based upon the fact that we are a new covenant community, which is another emphasis that you see uh, in the early church even through the medieval era is this emphasis on okay. There's a there's a new covenant aspect to it uh, Being the new authentic Israel indwelt by the spirit you think to Jeremiah 31 31 other passages Ezekiel 36 these passages that would speak about being indwelt by the spirit having the law of God written on their hearts a Kind of a holy set-apart people for God So that's the second a third ecclesiological distinctive um, I think was especially prominent in the early church was a pervasive Catholic consciousness, a Catholic consciousness. Now, before anybody throws a stone at me, of course, you know I'm going to say it's a small C. It's a small C Catholic, right? So we're not talking here about Roman Catholicism. That's part of the problem is that we've got the language that's been, uh, it's been twisted and, and changed over the years. But I actually think uh, there was a Catholic consciousness, a proper kind of Catholic consciousness in the early church. Now the meaning of the word Catholic is simply means universal. Universal. Right? So we're speaking here of the universal church. The church around the world. The church here in Canada, the church in the US, the church in Dubai, in China, you know, collectively, the church that Christ is building. And I think actually this was one of the this was one of the good things that you see happening, a, a little bit of something that I think we've lost as um, even as Protestants in kind of this denominational, saturated culture. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute. But to be a member, or to be a Christian, is to be a member in the body of Christ, singular, the body of Christ, universal. So that means that you as a Christian are connected in a vital way to believers all over the world. And, of course, we don't see that here necessarily, right? We have local churches. But one day in the future when we're with Christ in the new creation, well, that's, that's what it's going to be. It'll be the assembly of the redeemed. The redeemed from all, from every tribe and tongue and nation, right? You see in Revelation chapter 5. Turn with me to uh, Ephesians 4. This is a key passage. So Paul makes very clear here in verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Well, obviously the key word there is being one, right? There's one one God, there's there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit. Right? He's really emphasizing the unity of the church. And if you want to, you could look back in Ephesians chapter 2 where he really gives them the kind of the theological foundations for how this unity is brought about. How is it that Jews and Gentiles are united together in one body? Well, it's through the blood of Christ. Right? He, he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. And it's an amazing thing for us to consider how then the Lord is building his church around the world. People with all sorts of quirks and differences, cultural differences, personality differences, of course, sin being pervasive, and yet a people who are united in a same confession of faith that Jesus is Lord. Right, that, that there's one Lord. I, there's a little bit. Maybe if you, some of you have been to conferences before, some of the big kind of Christian conferences. It's a little bit of a foretaste, I think, of what we can expect in in the future. I mean, even here in this church, we we've seen people. There's uh, there's membership interviews going on right now. The membership classes that we've been teaching. You see people from all sorts of backgrounds coming here to this church people from different nations different languages different cultures uh, different testimonies of course you know some raised in christian homes some not raised in christian homes and yet they're coming here and together we worship and so even here in the local church setting it's actually a bit of a microcosm a little bit of a mini version of what we can expect in heaven where the saints together are worshiping christ now of course in heaven we're not going to have sin So so that's not going to be an issue that we're dealing with. But it's just a reminder that as you come here, uh, there's there's actually a a supernatural event in that Christ has knit us together. He's knit us together as one. So anyone then who submits to Christ as Lord, uh, who trusts in Him to save them from the wrath to come, uh, who has been baptized by the Spirit of Christ, who confesses that there is one God, one Father, Of all is properly then understood to be a member of the church, the church. So Polycarp, uh, another early church father, as he pray as he faced his own impending death, he prayed for the he said I'll pray for the entire Catholic Church throughout the world. He prayed for the entire Catholic Church throughout the world. So, is that something that even you have kind of on your radar when you're praying? Are you thinking about the persecuted church? Are you praying for them? Are you praying for our brothers and sisters over in Russia and Ukraine? I mean, these are some ways to kind of foster a proper kind of catholicity, even among believers. Justin Martyr, another father, he spoke of those who believe in Christ as being united, as he said, quote, in one soul, one synagogue, one church, as to a daughter. That is, thus addresses the church which has sprung from his name and partakes of his name. For we are all called Christians. We're all called Christians. So, then the question, I think, comes up is, well, does that mean then that our denominational distinctives, the fact that, you know, we have our, kind of our way of doing things, we have our own confession of faith here, we have our own membership, these denominational distinctives, local church autonomy, is that wrong? Is that contrary to this, this unity of the church? Now, Catholics will, will call Protestants, they'll say that they're schismatics. And you'll remember back to uh, Clint talking about the schism, great schism. Well, I'd actually argue the, the reverse. I'd say they're actually the schismatics because they're deviating from the apostolic word, uh, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. But I, I, don't think, I don't think so. I don't think these denominational distinctives are necessarily contrary to the unity, a proper kind of Catholicity. For one, we have to recognize that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world, so we're all gonna, we are all see through a glass dimly. None of us have the corner on the market of truth. Okay, so it's just a reminder to even to kind of humble ourselves and recognize, yeah, like... We're not a perfect church by any means, nor is the church down the street, right? We're, we're a bunch of sinners, and that means our knowledge is, is imperfect. Does that mean that we can't know things? Well, of course not, but it's just a recognition that we live in a fallen world. Secondly, biblically, you see in the, in, in the Bible itself, really oftentimes when the churches, is, when, when the authors refer to the church, they're speaking of a local church, they're speaking of a local church. They're not speaking of the church universal. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth, right? We just went through that. Uh, or he writes to a group of churches in a region, like the churches in Galatia. Okay, so there's, there's an emphasis here on, yes, a proper kind of Catholicity, but that does not negate the fact that, well, we're going to have individual churches. And wherever you have a true church, you actually have an expression of of the universal church in many ways so so I don't think it's necessarily wrong to have kind of these denominational distinctives, we live in a fallen world we're going to have different convictions you see in the Bible this emphasis on the local church so then how do we promote a proper kind of catholicity well one I just said one way to do that even personally is to pray for churches around the world to pray for them to give thought to them uh, so that's that's one of the things we do here just even in our pastoral prayers we try to pray for other churches in in uh, in Alberta in this region and then around the world Pastor Clint a couple weeks ago he prayed for uh, a brother over a pastor over in um, Russia Ukraine um, so so praying for another way we do it is we try to host some conferences so we've hosted conferences where we invite churches from all sorts of kind of maybe different nuances on their doctrine, different views on baptism, different views, and yet they hold to the same gospel. And so we fellowship together in that way. Uh, We have a monthly pastors meeting here uh, through the Gospel Coalition Prairies. So we've got Anglicans, we have Pentecostals, we have Baptists, there's Presbyterians. All sorts of flavors, and yet again, committed to the one Lord and one faith. And one baptism, baptism of the Spirit, namely. Um, we've participated in the Calgary Reform Conferences, uh, planting churches. That's another way to promote Catholicity, to remember that we're not the, you know, we don't, we don't want to just build up here just to kind of hoard everything here. We actually want to wanna go. We want to send. We want the church to, um, to grow and to, to fill the earth. So there's lots of ways that we can promote catholicity while yet holding to our distinctives here Okay, so that's a third a fourth a fourth Is continuity with the apostolic message that's a fourth distinctive Continuity with the apostolic message So the theme kind of of this series is contending for the faith which is taken from Jude 3 That he he wants to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So there is a there is a faith, there is a a a tradition that has been delivered once for all. It's not an ongoing thing, right? There's been a the gospel has been uh, has been delivered, and now we are to contend for that gospel. Not the gospel of, that's constantly changing with new revelation, but the one that has been revealed and preserved even in the Scriptures. So really, what we see is an emphasis on the church seeking to maintain continuity with the, uh, the apostles and the apostles' message. Um, so it really gets us then to the issue of, uh, of authority. So we think back to, to Matthew chapter 16, and you'll remember there that that statement right that upon peter on, on this rock i will build my church well what's he what's he getting to there well some people will say that he's he's speaking there about peter's confession namely the confession that you are the christ the son of the living god i actually don't think it's specifically the confession i think he is saying he is going to build the church upon peter but it's It's in the sense of Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. They lay a foundation. And certainly their foundation is the message, which is a confession of Christ as Lord. So it's not that the confession has nothing to do with it. But it is that the apostles, as those with a delegated authority from Christ, are actually foundational. Now you have to remember, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So everything is set around him. Everything is set around his person, who he is, and what he's done. And so then the building, the church takes its shape ultimately from Christ, its structural integrity from Christ. And yet these apostles, as those who came after Christ, they laid down this foundation upon which we stand. But as you've probably heard before, when you've laid a foundation, do you keep laying a foundation? If you've built a house, like, do you just keep laying a foundation? Oh, we just need to lay another foundation. No, no, no. The foundation's been laid. And that gives us the dimensions and, and, and how the church is to be built. And so the walls, you know, you think of how, how the church is structured and organized. Well, that needs to be, that needs to follow then the pattern that the apostles have laid, namely the foundation. And we really saw this in, uh, in the early church, and I think the true church is, has sought to maintain continuity. And, of course, this was very important because you think of all the heresies that we've covered. You know, Arianism, Sabellianism, Pelagianism. You know, there's all these false teachings that they're, that they're dealing with. And so the Christians had to ask themselves, well, what's our final court of appeal? Where do we determine, like, how do we determine this is false and this is heretical versus this is true. They needed some final court of appeal. We all do, right? And so they uh, sought to maintain continuity with the apostolic word. Uh, it, it's just a reminder too for us that this is what we as a local church must be about. We cannot be naive consumers. We, we actually have to be rigorous In our discernment in our testing like the Bereans right that famous example they they tested to see they look at the scriptures and are these things so is it true is it true what we're hearing from the Apostle Paul and they came to the conclusion yeah what what Paul's teaching is in line with the rest of the scriptures and that becomes our ultimate authority now uh, towards the end of end of the second century we do get some some stuff kind of starting to derail a little bit. It's a bit seed form of kind of the the apostolic succession that later would kind of blossom into um, what the Roman Catholics would talk about as this kind of apostolic succession from Peter. So um, Irenaeus, at the end of the second century, he spoke of the elders possessing uh, a succession from the apostles. Uh, Cyprian. Who lived uh, around AD 210 to 258? He was the bishop of Carthage, and he used Matthew 16 here, this passage, to argue much the same that, you know, uh, Peter's the, the rock, and then there's, there's going to be a, a successor from Peter, and then another successor from Peter, that kind of this endless line of succession of, of really apostles who would then be able to lay down new revelation. But as we go back to Jude chapter 3, we have to remember, okay, well, the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. The foundation has been laid. Okay, so but there's you see how some of these things started to kind of get a little bit muddied. And that then brings us to, to a fifth uh, kind of ecclesiological distinctive in development. is the centralization of power. The centralization of power. So over the course of the first four centuries, um, the power of the clergy steadily increased and became centralized in a few key figures. Uh, bishops, as they were initially called. And then eventually it came to the point where one leader, namely the Bishop of Rome, was deemed to have kind of ultimate authority over the church. But as I said, you know, everybody wants to claim the church fathers as, you know, this, we can see this right from the New Testament all the way through. But it's a mixed bag. Like, you got people confused, and these things developed over time, as false teaching does. Okay, so if you, ever, if you ever hear somebody, like in the Roman Catholic Church, say, well, we can trace it all the way back as like this kind of pure line, well, you know that they actually haven't read the fathers closely. Because there's confusion. And sometimes there's conflicting statements within the same guy. It's like, what does he mean? So it's not as easy to put together as just saying, oh, well, we... We get to claim continuity with, uh, with the apostles and, and the church fathers in, in kind of this perfect line of succession. But so, so we have to ask ourselves, being that the apostles were uh, the foundation of the church, what did they teach regarding leadership in the church? What did they teach? Well, how many offices are there? How many offices did the apostles lay down as there to be in the local church. Two. What are the two offices? Yeah. So you got elders and deacons, and there's actually various terms that are used interchangeably to describe elders. So you've got elder, you've got overseer, you've got pastor. Okay. So there's and they're all used interchangeably. So an elder is a pastor, a pastor is a is a uh, is a overseer, and then you have deacons. So these two offices. Now early on, actually, we begin to see a deviation from this biblical pattern of of the two offices. So Ignatius of Antioch, who lived in the second century, uh, he argued that there were actually three, three biblical offices. Bishops, presbyters, and deacons. Bishops, presbyters, and deacons. So the bishops, taken from the Greek word episkopos, what he believed that these were qualified men in kind of what we could say, uh, like senior executive type roles. Right, So they're kind of overseeing a whole group of churches in a region or in a city. The senior executive kind of pastor over a region. Now, now, actually, how do we get to the word bishop? Um, well, the Latin word is, is episcopos, uh, and then the vulgar Latin was ebiscopas. And then Anglo-Saxon was bishop, and English was bishop. So you actually see how how you get from Episcopos to bishop. It kind of throughout the years as the languages um, as English became a main language. So the bishops were these senior executive presbyters. They would have been like your local church pastors. Presbyters were like your local church pastors, and then deacons. Uh, Originally, these were viewed as assistants or helpers to the bishop, Uh, but then they actually became more tied to local churches rather than the whole kind of uh, the bishop's empire, if you want to think of it in that way, and they became assistants to the pastors, and then eventually the deacon became kind of the track, the, the first step on training to become a pastor. So it was like you become a deacon, and then you become a presbyter, and then you become A Bishop if you make it all the way kind of to the to the top but again these things developed over the course of uh, Of centuries it wasn't like oh this was you know this was right away These things developed over the courses of centuries and there was differences of of opinions even among uh, The pastors themselves as to how biblical this actually was Um, But we do see this emphasis on on church leadership so Clement of Rome Uh, who was the lead pastor there in in rome for about the last decade of the first century he actually wrote a letter to the corinthian church same church that paul wrote his letters to Um, and what was happening in that church is there was a group of young people who were basically seeking to overtake the elders like we've had enough with you clowns we're gonna we're gonna assert ourselves and take over and clement he wrote this letter um talking about the proper respect that one should have for those who hold office. And, and he said, um, later he spoke about these approved men who should succeed the apostles in their ministry. So what Clement means by succeed is not all that clear. As said Roman Catholics obviously want to say that this is clear ap- evidence of apostolic succession. But actually... It could be very much like this kind of Second Timothy two two concept. Second Timothy two two says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there is a proper kind of apostolic succession, not not in terms of the office, but in terms of the message. Right? P- Paul is saying, Okay, Timothy, yeah, you're gonna I'm passing on the baton to you but you're not an apostle. You don't get to lay the foundation. You don't have the same kind of quality of revelation, but what you're to do is the stuff that you've heard from me and seen in me, well, you're to entrust this then to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So it's a succession of the apostolic word, not the apostolic office. Uh, Elsewhere in this same letter, Clement, he makes really sharp distinctions between the clergy and the laity. So basically the pastors and the people in the pew. And this really gets picked up in the medieval era. There's really sharp distinctions between, you know, the clergy, laity. And you see that today in Roman Catholicism. Right? That they actually functionally deny, well, even theologically deny, the priesthood of all believers. So who do you have to go to to get your, to get your sins dealt with? Well, you've got to go through The priest. Right, you had to go confess to the priest the, the priests the, they're the professional ministers the clergy They're the professional ministers the people in the pew. Well, they just kind of come there to be in a sense spectators um, So so they're just they're mere recipients they're not participants in the ministry which is contrary of course to What you read even in Ephesians 4 right after that passage talking about one Lord one faith, one baptism he speaks about the gifts and then he talks about the pastors. He's given churches pastors, shepherds. What? What's their work? To equip. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So there is a. I think there's a lesson for here, us uh, for us is that there's a danger actually in becoming too hierarchical, too hierarchical, actually importing this kind of what I'd say is an old covenant paradigm into this new covenant era. Or you end up having, that's very much what Roman Catholicism is. It's, a, it's an old covenant paradigm. You got kind of the priests up there, they got close access to God, and then the people, the regular people, well, you know, they don't really have the same kind of special, special access to the Lord. So they got to go through the priest. It's ultimately a denial of the, the high priesthood of Christ. But there's a danger of becoming too hierarchical in that we forget, okay, no, every believer, because they have the Spirit, is actually a priest. Does that eliminate all distinctions between leadership and office? No. Of course, there's offices, there's leaders, they have a certain kind of authority. But it is a reminder for us all here that if you are a believer in Christ, you're actually a, a participant in the ministry going on in the church. Even a priest, you have this priestly work that we're to be about together. Well, for the sake of time, I'm going I'm to go to the um, to the six to the six uh, distinctive here and that's ceremonial Christianity. Ceremonial Christianity. So this is, is what's often referred to as sacramentalism uh, and or ritualism sacramentalism or ritualism what is a sacrament well augustine and others they defined a sacrament as an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace okay a sacrament is an outward and visible sign so something that you can see and it signifies something of an inward and invisible grace and since the new testament there's two universally agreed upon sacraments Uh, Baptism and the Lord's Supper Protestants will often refer to these as the ordinances because uh, Because Christ has ordained or instituted them and it was also a way to kind of distinguish themselves from um, Kind of the the sacramental theology of Roman Catholicism But this understanding of a outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace Now Roman Catholicism today. They have seven sacraments, so not two They have seven uh, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. Okay, so those are the seven, um, the seven sacraments that are practiced by the Roman Catholic Church. Now what's interesting is that those don't actually get developed until much later. And in fact, all seven of those weren't enumerated, at least in writing, together until um, a guy named Peter Lombard noted them Around uh, 1150, 1150. So they weren't all noted together until the 12th century, which is again, it just shows that like, okay, to say that you got this direct line, and that you did, like, we're the purists is actually just not taking s- history seriously. Later at the Council of Trent in 1547, anyone who denied any one of these seven as being sacraments was was declared anathema or cursed outside. The faith outside the church, outside of salvation. Um, but but there's two, in, especially in the early church, two really universally agreed upon sacraments: baptism and the Lord's supper. So first, baptism. There's actually a lot of indication in the early church that baptism, um, that being baptized as a believer was the accepted standard. We we all think that, well these, these people were they were all paedobaptists. Actually. No, the the norm, the standard was, no, you're baptized as a believer. And the reason I say that is, there's there's a few reasons, and there's a few kind of evidences. First, the Didache, which was written kind of in the late first, early part of the second century. So basically right after the New Testament was uh, was written, the last book of the New Testament was written. It supported baptism by immersion, although they allowed for pouring in cases where uh, maybe there wasn't enough water present baptism by immersion, and they also emphasize that candidates must fast and pray before they're baptized. Now, I don't know about you, but I have yet to see any infant fasting and praying. And if you, and if you try to have an infant fast or pray, you'll soon quit the fast, right? Like, they're, they're not going to be fasting and praying. It's actually outside of their ability to do. So you see that in the Didache. Justin Martyr, in his first apology, he wrote that a baptismal candidate said, quote, must be persuaded and believe what we teach and say is true and undertake to live accordingly. So the person actually had to be persuaded and believe what was taught, namely the gospel. Uh, Again, that that would seem to exclude infants. Uh, Tertullian, he also argued against infant baptism, and also stated that baptism uh, does not save a person but rather sound faith he said is secure of salvation right so he he was emphasizing faith faith first and then baptism uh there there's lots of others that you, that you could look to but my point here is just that as we think of we think of the early church we just think oh well everybody there baptized their infants actually it wasn't really until i think Third and fourth centuries, that infant baptism became more popularized, and and the one who popularized it was Augustine. Augustine, uh, he defended infant baptism. He drew this parallel um, with the rite of circumcision, and then because of his doctrine of original sin, he believed that bacti- baptism was what he called a sacrament of regeneration. So it's actually a reminder too for us just to think that while. Well, guys like Augustine have really shaped much of, well, they've shaped Western society, but much of what we believe, even as kind of Reformed theologians, there was actually things within their theology that were out of step with the Scriptures, and it's a reminder that we follow no man but Christ, right? We've got to test these things. We've got to test them. Just because somebody's right in some area doesn't mean that they can't be wrong in another, Um, So Augustine actually defended uh, infant baptism and it became kind of confusing even in how they talked about uh, baptism being tied to regeneration Cyril uh, of Jerusalem. He was he was one Cyprian. He's a really uh, key figure who who tied baptism to regeneration? Uh, Now it's again. It's a little bit unclear unclear what these guys actually meant by some of this kind of stuff because sometimes they were repeating just the biblical language verbatim without giving much explanation. Uh, you know, talking about baptism as washing away sins. Well you, well, you see kind of this image of baptism washing away sins, but the question is, what precedes it? What precedes it? Is it faith? Well, they seem to indicate, many of them seem to indicate that there actually has to be, there actually has to be a, a, a first a confidence in the Lord and then baptism as something which, uh, which signifies it. So that's baptism. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is is commonly referred to in some traditions as the Eucharist. Um, Again, much, much like baptism, the church's view on the Lord's Supper was not uniform either. So many of these guys, we have to remember the context in which they lived. The context in which they lived. They were dealing with all sorts of other heresies. You think back to Docetism, which is the heresy that said Jesus only appeared to be a man which is a kind of a, a Gnostic flavor to it, right? Where the, where the material is no good, the spiritual is what matters. Well, these guys were fighting against these heresies, and so I think in order to kind of counteract, they really emphasized uh, kind of the fleshiness of Christ, even in communion. And so they, they talked a lot about, you know, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, which is actually biblical language. The question again is, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by that? But it's interesting, if you, read, if you read the guys carefully, you actually find that they give more nuance to their understanding of, of those concepts than we might think. So again, Tertullian, he spoke of the bread as being what he called a symbol, a symbol of the body. Uh, so there's nothing here about the elements, the bread and the wine, actually changing in their essence, which would later become uh, adopted by the Roman Catholic Church the doctrine of transubstantiation but there's nothing here of changing of the essence of the, but rather that they are a symbol or a sign they point to something uh, Justin Martyr he spoke of taking taking communion as remembrance and commemoration of the body and blood of Christ origin he stated that we have a symbol of gratitude to God in the bread which we called uh, the Eucharist and Augustine uh, he said, in one of his, uh, in one of his writings, "quote It is therefore a figure or symbol, enjoining that we should have a share in the sufferings of our Lord, and that we should retain a sweet and profitable memory of the fact that His flesh was wounded and crucified for us." So, so even here, this this concept of remembering, reminding—that's that's what we're being, that's what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper, right? We're taking this in remembrance of him. So, in other words, there's no proof here that the doctrine of transubstantiation was even in these early church fathers. In fact, they seem to be thinking about it more in symbolic terms, commemorating the death of Christ. Transubstantiation wasn't officially affirmed until what's called the Fourth Lateran Council, and that was in 1215. Um, so, that, so that's that's baptism, Lord's Supper, and then finally here. Kind of the ceremonial component the the addition of relics and icons adding relics and icons to the worship of the church Uh, so in the fourth century there was this movement towards what became what some guys call the cult of saints and relics where you're worshiping the saints Um, Mariology increased especially in kind of the seventh eighth ninth centuries later on praying to mary worshiping mary in a sense, um, people looking to, to relics, different pieces. So maybe they'd have like a, a garment of clothing from somebody. Or there was even people who were weird enough to, to have like the bones of dead people. And they would, they would look to these and kind of and, and worship them. And it actually became, talk about not being distinct from the world. That was one of the accusations against these people is that you're no different than the world. You're actually just worshipping idols like the rest of the pagans. Because you you set these little things up on on an altar and you're basically worshipping these dead saints rather than worshipping God alone. Uh, So even though this became popularized, there were those who opposed it. So again, it's a mixed bag. It's not like every single person there affirmed these things. Uh, One guy uh, named Vigilantius said that Uh, These practices are disguised as piety, uh, and and in them we virtually see the worship of the pagans being introduced into the churches. People light rows of candles in broad daylight, and everywhere they kiss and adore the dead, bodies dust, deposited in a little pot and wrapped up in a precious piece of cloth. So by no means did everybody, uh, everybody affirm this. Uh, what what ended up happening later in the eighth and ninth centuries was what's called the iconoclastic controversy. So basically, there was a uh, an emperor, Emperor Leo, who was opposed to the icons and basically uh, called for the destruction of these icons in worship, which is what the word iconoclastic means. It literally means destruction of icons. And so it went back and forth, and there was debates about whether that should happen. Eventually, another church council was assembled in Nicaea in 787 and condemned the destruction of icons and basically said, no, this is, this is what we're to do um, in worship. And of course, it's a perennial debate even today as to, you know, should you have a nativity set? Is it proper to have a nativity set, to have an image of, of Jesus or, or to watch, uh, what's that popular show, everybody's watching it these days what what's chosen yeah the chosen Um, sounds like a thriller the chosen so you know is, is it is it proper well the first thing I'd say is just we have to remember that even mental images of God can become idolatrous so it's not just physical images physical things can become but like we can create and construct our own idea of who God is and Worship that God and that be idolatrous as well uh, Secondly if you are depending on these images to uh, To basically grow your faith and it's like I'm depending more on looking at, at this image in the in the manger or on the TV screen well actually You're in danger of moving away from the faith once for all delivered right you so if you're depending on that to kind of stoke your faith and you're not reading your Bibles, it's actually flip-flopped. Um, you're looking in, in the wrong place. There's lots, we could, lots more we could say about that. Um, but just to sum it up, and then I'll open up for questions here for five or seven minutes. So the church will prevail. right? The church is going to prevail. And even though, uh, you know, the Lord doesn't do things the way that we would want Him to do. right? We, we want it to be like, oh, there's just this clear line that we can just trace all the way through and the church has just been pure and spotless all the way through. Well the reality is the church is full of sinners. Sinners get caught up in all sorts of uh, other motivations. Uh, they can be uh, conscripted by politicians for their purposes. I think that happened a lot in the medieval era. These Christians were these Christian leaders were conscripted and hijacked basically for political ends. So so we got to we got to remember that even though the Lord doesn't do these things necessarily in the way that we would prefer, it doesn't maybe make it as clear throughout history, we do remember that like in the time of, uh, was it Ahab, you know, there were 7,000 who did not bend the knee to Baal. The Lord has preserved His church. Maybe it seems few and far between, but He is continuing to build His church, and He will do so. So even as, you know, maybe we feel like we're going into dark ages, churches going all over the map and derailing it's a reminder for us that christ is building his church and we we actually depend upon him as the head ultimately and must submit to him and that's the final thing i'll just say is that it's a matter of of who are we ultimately submitting to we're we're not christians because augustine or calvin or your pastor says it's true we are christians fundamentally because we believe That Christ is the head and and the reason we believe that and the reason we confess that is going back to Matthew 16 what did flesh and blood reveal it to you No God revealed it to you he changed your heart That's why we're believers. That's why we're Christians not because um, other men have told us so necessarily I'll open it up for any questions here. I don't know if I can answer anything if I can't I'll I'll think on it and get back to you. DJ? Right. Yeah. So the question is, what are, what are some legitimate reasons for, um, for having a denomination or splitting from a denomination? Well, I think you've got you to gotta first, of course, have agreement on the gospel. But denominations are ones that are organized around what we would call secondary doctrines. So matters of, of doctrine that are in the scriptures, but that Christians, they're going to have disagreements on. It doesn't mean that they're unimportant. They actually are important. So one, the chief one, I think, would be um, a person's understanding of baptism, baptism, and that's really where you see these distinctions among, um, you know, Baptists, Presbyterians, Anglicans. They all kind of got a little bit different understandings of baptism. Um, Why do I say that? Well, because to actually then go about doing the Great Commission requires that you have some basis of agreement on baptism, because that's right in the Great Commission. Right, so who are we going to baptize? Well, here, our conviction is that we don't see in the scriptures that we're told to baptize infants. And that would be, then, not a baptism. It's, it's not a baptism at all. So it becomes very difficult to go plant churches, for instance, if you don't have an agreement on something such as that. I'd say complementarianism is another uh, another area. Because it gets to church leadership, how your church is organized. So are you going to have people in leadership, are you going to have men and women serving as pastors? Or is it biblically qualified men? So again, kind of matters that pertain to, um, to church life, to family life here, and then the Great Commission. Those things really, uh, they require, I think, some, some separation. But then there's other ways that you can partner with other Christians. Um, in the, in the gospel through praying other partnerships conferences things like that So secondary and then a reason not to separate I would say is something like eschatology Like so if your view on the Millennium or the rapture Well those things they actually become it's not that they're unimportant I don't want to say that and that we shouldn't search them out But they're they're less clear even than something like baptism and they're even less central. I would say to to the Great Commission So, tied to the Great Commission and to kind of local church family life. Yeah. So the question is, to what degree should we partner with um roman catholicism in social efforts this is a big debate about uh, evangelicals and catholics together a big debate and it's it still is a a debate how much do we get involved with these other things well the the reality is is that when it comes we have to make a distinction here when it comes to the mission of the church and then other things as it pertains to uh, some of these social or political things so just like You, you, and your kind of political advocacy might be partnering with other non-Christians for, you know, common causes like uh, against abortion, against euthanasia, against the kind of the radical LGBTQ stuff. Well, there there is a basis of agreement, but you're not doing that as we're not doing that as a church collectively. You know, we're not telling, we're not giving you the stamp of approval to like, okay, as a church we're getting together with the Roman Catholics, and we're going to have this, this big rally. That would be, I think that would be improper because it starts to blur the lines then between, well, actually, no, as a church, they're not a church. They're actually a false religion. Um, and yet there is, by God's common grace, a basis of agreement that we have with, um, with certain people for some of these social efforts. So I would have to, you'd have to make a distinction there between us as a, as a church, kind of institutionally, as an organization. We're not going to be partnering with any of those things. But you then as a Christian in your various vocations, you're going to have opportunity to partner with other people and, and in various ways. It's kind of like, there's no way to get out of the world completely. So at some point, you're going to have to work with non-Christians, right? You can't just hunker down and hide away and become your own little colony. I mean, you can, but it wouldn't be right. So so no evangelicals and Catholics together, but then as individual believers, yeah, there's partnerships. Well, if you have any other questions, feel free to come talk to me. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're, we're going to get ready for the main service here. Father, thank you for The fact that you are building a church and and that we have confidence that you will indeed continue to do so even as we've considered the church around the world we do pray for the Saints who are gathering globally today Uh, we ask Lord that you would you would convict them of their sins that you would heal them even through the gospel we ask Lord too, just in particular for our brothers and sisters in Russia and Ukraine, and over in that part of the world, as they face uh, the terrors of war, uh, be near to them, oh Lord, help them to run to you for refuge, and give, and give us even wisdom to know how we can help, how we can partner, we pray here too, even for this church, that we would be a body united together, in love for one another, uh, in confessing that Christ is Lord. We thank you for these things, and we even anticipate hearing from your word here in in a few moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.